Hey, Kate. Yeah? Do we give legal advice on this podcast? Hostile work environment. Exactly. Hey, an appropriate workplace topic. Hostile work environment. I'm the human resources director. Little Miss Hostile Work Environment. Hello, and welcome to the Hostile Work Environment Podcast. My name is Mark Alifans. I'm here. One day I'm going to do this, and Kate isn't going to go through the whole thing. Uh, I'm here with Kate Bischoff. Same Kate as usual. Um, hi, Kate. How are you? I'm well. I'm, uh, I'm Mexico-bound, so I'm pretty excited about it. How about you? How are you? When do you leave? When, when do you leave for Mexico? Monday. Tomorrow. Monday? Mm-hmm. So tomorrow? Okay. Well, that sounds warmer than Minneapolis. Yes. We were just, before we came on, we were just comparing uh, weather. I uh, shocked Kate into the realization that Portland is actually farther north than Minneapolis. Mm-hmm. Because um, you're look a, on a map. What? Yeah, because you're a it's geography true. nerd. Because mm-hmm. I'm a geography nerd, but uh, but I did not make any claims that were colder. Yes. So. <laughs> you are definitely not colder. And your poor men's soccer team is going to be playing in negative degrees on Wednesday. So. Yeah, and they're playing right now, which if I'd realized when we scheduled this, I would have said, screw you guys, I'm going to watch that. I have it on on a separate screen here while we're while we're recording, uh, and uh, we're losing already, so that's awesome, um, which is exactly what I predicted. Um, we'll see how that goes. It took six minutes for Canada to score, so that literally just happened. So anyway, uh, you may have heard a third voice pop up there a moment ago. Uh, we have a guest today. And we don't do, uh, I'm going to do my, my intro now. Uh, we don't do guests too often on this podcast, but we're making an exception <laughs> for some really cool and different kind of content that we haven't really done on here before. Uh, I'm going to admit that this one is really special for me uh, and something we've talked about doing for a really long time. Uh, Aaron Weiss is our guest today. He is the deputy director of the Center for Western Priorities, a nonpartisan conservation and advocacy organization in Denver, Colorado, that promotes responsible policies and practices and ensures accountability at all levels to protect land, water, and communities in the American West. Aaron is the founder and co-host of the center's podcast, The Landscape, which is a fascinating look at various issues related to land use, national parks, and related policies and politics in the Western U.S. I've learned a ton from this podcast, uh, just listening to it over the years, uh, highly recommend Before that, Aaron worked as a news producer (laughs) in Sioux City, Iowa, Portland, Oregon, and his hometown of Tucson, Arizona. You might think, based on that, that I met Aaron during his 10 years living in Portland, but that would be wrong. I actually met Aaron, and I'm going to see his face when I say this. I met Aaron 27 years ago. Wow. Yeah. Uh, when we were both freshmen living in the Hewitt Dormitory at Wesleyan University, and we bonded over a shared love of Kate's favorite, Billy Joel. <laughs> and Bruce Hornsby. And Bruce I like Hornsby. Bruce Hornsby. Uh, so we were friends all throughout college, uh, housemates our senior year. Occasionally, we collaborated on some projects, mostly in theater. And we've been in near daily contact ever since, which is crazy because <laughs> it's been 27 years. 27 years. Uh, yeah. Aaron. Welcome to the hostile work environment. I'm stoked to have you here. Thank you. The longtime listener, first time <laughs> caller, and my condolences <laughs> on a bad football day for you. Oh, it is what it is. No biggie. No biggie. Um, so, Aaron 
is going to talk uh, to us about two stories today. So I think we're going to mix this up a little bit. So Aaron's going to start off with one story, then Kate's going to do a story, then Aaron's going to do another story, and then I've got a listener story for us today. Uh, the first story that Aaron's going to talk to us about is a fascinating one. It's rooted in the early labor movement in the United, in U.S. history. Uh, the other thing he's going to talk about happened just last week, which is more of our kind of normal content. Um, but several years ago, I was listening to The Landscape, uh, and each episode, Aaron does uh, uh, an historical segment talking about some crazy story or something that happened this week in Western U.S. history. And in that particular episode, Aaron told this story about uh, with an employment aspect, and I immediately thought it would be great content uh, for this podcast. And then sometime later, I actually heard a much longer version of that same story on another one of my favorite podcasts called The Dollop. A few more f bombs in, in that. <laughs> There's a few more f bombs in that version, uh, and they 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 stretched it and dragged it out for well over an hour. We're not going to do that today. Uh, but anyway, rather than duplicate Aaron's oh, prior crap, work, I better and, start cutting. And, yeah, um, <laughs> Aaron's prior work <laughs> and the Dobbs work. I thought let's get Aaron on here to join us today uh, and to tell this story with our our interjections, mostly Kate's because she doesn't know this mm -hmm. story uh, going into it, and I do. Uh, and Aaron can use his uh, very professional news producer <laughs> voice. Um, and uh, let's let's hear it. All right. So uh, this is a seminal moment in, in early labor and union history, and it starts – uh, as so many great labor disputes do with the fight for an eight hour workday. Uh, so we're, we're going to 1894, uh, just up the road from here in Cripple Creek, Colorado. Uh, mine owners were trying to lengthen the workday from eight hours to 10 hours in 1894. The miners went on strike. The mine owners brought in scabs. The miners started threatening the scabs. So the mine owners brought in 1,200 armed men Holy. and got their private army deputized by the county sheriff. Different time. Yeah. It's different a different time. time. All right. And let's just for context here, let's just remember this is before the National Labor Relations Act becomes law, yes. which I believe happens in the 1930s. Yes. So we're a solid 40, 50 years before that and a much less regulated time. So so the labor law has not developed into anything close to what it is today. No. No. And and that is eventually how, how this all. first dispute resolves itself is the governor steps in, calls out the state militia to uh, disarm the private security force, and the governor basically strong arms the mine owners into going back to an eight-hour workday. And that is the status okay. quo uh, for eight years till we get to 1902 and you have the union, the Western Federation of Miners now pushing for the eight hour workday to become state law for all mine and mill workers across the entire state. And this is something that in that time period ended up going to the Supreme court, Utah had an eight hour workday and the U S Supreme court had found that constitutional. So Colorado, they knew could do it, but the Colorado Supreme Court said that doing that would re require amending the Colorado state constitution as well. well so the state legislature, yeah, what? Uh, I mean, western I know, Western state constitutions are weird in all sorts of ways. Uh, I don't know the exact clause that the state uh, the state Supreme Court at that point would have said, "No, you have to do this at the state level as well." But anyway, they did. The legislature. Uh, <laughs> 
bipartisan or tripartisan, you've got three parties in, in play at the state level at this point, they send an eight-hour workday to a popular referendum in 1902. It passes with 72% of voter support across the state. Good job. Good job. Hey, we just passed a constitutional amendment uh, allowing an eight-hour workday. And then the mining companies stepped in and said, well, hang on here. That doesn't fly for us. So <laughs> the mining companies convinced the legislature to not pass the enabling legislation <gasps> that the constitutional amendment allows that voters approved by 72% this, approval. This sounds like in crazy. Yeah, this sounds like the current South Dakota governor not allowing recreational marijuana to go into effect because she doesn't like it, even though her voters voted it in. Ah, yes. Okay. Yes. Uh, so the governor was a Republican, James Peabody. He had been elected on a conservative pro-business platform. There were, uh, there was a democratic and a populist candidate also on the ballot. They split the progressive pro-labor vote. Mm -hmm. Uh, so you had a, a mining friendly governor and the unions, not surprisingly, were not so happy about this. Mm -hmm. Um, so Fast forward from November to February 1903, uh, Colorado City, where you've got mill workers. The, these are the folks who refine the ore coming out of the mines. Uh, and the mill workers in Colorado City were organizing. The mill owners hired the Pinkertons, uh, who you will know from really just about any Western yep. uh, and, and you know organized crime film. The Pinkertons... They're brought in to infiltrate the union. They're the good guys? Yeah, they're uh, definitely not the good guys <laughs> of this story. Uh, so the Pinkertons infiltrate the union. The mill promptly fires 42 people who were exposed by the Pinkerton spy as trying to organize. The company refused to even negotiate, uh, so the mill workers went on strike. Uh, the sheriff's department in Colorado City was effectively an arm of the mill owners. Oh. The mill owners were even paying the salaries of the sheriff's deputies that were protecting mill properties. And the sheriff then appointed the general manager of the mill as a sheriff's deputy. <laughs> nice. So the sheriff nice. working, you know, mm -hmm. the, the sheriff who is both paying the, the deputies, uh, getting paid by the, uh, the mill owners calls, asks the governor to send in troops. He just makes up a story about a mob that does not exist, but it works. The governor then orders the National Guard in to escort scabs to and from the mills, keeping the mills open with non-union labor. The, the National Guard is harassing union picketers along the way, which takes us to the very next month, March 1903, in Cripple Creek. Now, Cripple Creek has the mines that are supplying the mills that are on strike in Colorado City. Okay. So you've got 12 mines shipping ore anyway, and the union asked the mines to, hey, please stop that. Uh, and the miners say, well, heck no, we're going to keep mining. Uh, so 750 miners walk off the job uh, out of a, from a dozen mines there. And the governor steps in. You can tell he, he he's trying to maybe keep things going, but not pissing off his... Uh, his benefactors here. So he brokers a deal where the mills will hire back union members. But at the same time, on the other hand, he starts looking into quote, an allotment of crag guns, which is to say <laughs> long distance rifles, oh, because that is the kind of trustworthy, honest broker the governor was. Woo. All right. So that takes us 
to May 1903 in Idaho Springs, uh, not far from Cripple Creek. Miners there also going on strike, asking for an eight-hour workday at six mines uh, in and around Idaho Springs. Three of the mines agreed. Workers return. At the other three, the strike goes on. It stretches from May into June into July of 1903. And then on July 28th, 1903, there is a bombing, a dynamiting of a powerhouse at a mine there. One miner was killed in what appeared to be a premature explosion. It was one of the union miners setting the, the bomb. So union members get rounded up, thrown in jail, yep. and a sheriff's posse expels 23 of them from the town of Idaho Springs. This is blatantly illegal. The judge says so. No, you can't just throw people out of your town. The governor ignores the judge's order. Eight union members were put on trial for the explosion and acquitted. And the same judge then issues a bench warrant for 129 members of a pro-business vigilante league that was throwing these folks out of town. But the district attorney was in cahoots with the mining company and refuses to execute the warrants. Basically giving a green light to these vigilantes citizen committees uh, that are set up with, with, you know, absurd names like, you know, citizens committee for safety and crap like that. All right. So okay. now we're into August. Okay. I, August 1903, the union is again trying to shut down the mines that are supplying ore to the mills in Colorado City. And this time they shut down the entire mining district. 3,500 workers walk off the job. But also at this point, the union starts overplaying their hand a bit. The, the union was allowed to call a strike without a membership vote. And historians say that a majority of miners were actually opposed to that strike at that point. Okay. But one mine breaks ranks, reaches a deal anyway. 500 miners go back to work. The other mine owners hold firm. Everyone's digging in. A union member's house burns. The shaft house at one of the mines burned. Mary Jones better known to you and me as Mother Jones, oh, heads to Colorado. Okay. Yeah. And the governor says, no, you're not allowed to come into the state. Now, obviously that's not illegal, but if there's one thing we've learned about Governor Peabody, it's that he really didn't think much about- Legality. Laws. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, so September 1903, the governor sends the National Guard in. And by the end of the month, nearly 1,000 soldiers were guarding the mines, patrolling the roads- they were led by a guy named General Sherman Bell, who was, you will be shocked to learn this, a former mine manager. <laughs> He's perfect. In fact, mine owners were paying General Bell an extra $3,200 a year on top of his state salary with the National Guard. Yep. And lo and behold, the governor was able to produce a thousand crag rifles and 60,000 rounds of ammunition. And Governor Bell declares that his actions are, quote, a military necessity which recognizes no laws, either civil or social. Okay, so. So he's saying like, the quiet part out loud. Mm -hmm. Saying the quiet part out loud here. What about the Constitution, due process and mm -hmm. all of that? One of Bell's top officers, quote, to hell with the Constitution. We aren't, we aren't going by the Constitution. <laughs> oh, geez. We don't need no stinking badges. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so. General Bell's troops just start locking up union of officials, union officials. They lock up a justice of the peace. They lock up the chairman of the county board of commissioners. Oh, 
The newspaper in Victor, uh, Colorado, warns people to not talk about the strike situation, let they, lest they get locked up too. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then when another newspaper mistakenly said that one of the soldiers working for Bell was an ex-con, the newspaper staff was locked up before they could even publish a correction. Uh, so a typesetter at the newspaper sneaks back into the office, barricades herself inside, prints the next edition of the newspaper all by herself, and goes to deliver it to all of these prisoners who've been locked up in the stockade, which apparently is just what it sounds yeah. like, basically a a livestock stockade mm-hmm. where all these folks are getting, getting rounded up. All right, so September now, the National Guard is just rounding up folks every day, willy-nilly locking them up. A judge holds a habeas corpus hearing, and General Bell says, quote, habeas corpus be damned, we'll give him postmortems. <laughs> oh my God! <laughs> what? So at this point, 90 of the the general's men surround the courthouse. The general's men march the prisoners into the courtroom at bayonet point with loaded rifles. The judge goes ballistic, blasts the military, yep. orders the prisoners released, and Bell's men actually just refused to follow the, the judge's orders until the governor stepped in. Uh, they, they were released at that point. You can tell the governor realizing things are getting out of hand here, but he can't bring himself to actually stop it. So the court then orders that General right. Bell and his brigadier general be arrested for violating the state constitution, which very clearly says the military shall always be in strict subordination to the civil power. Mm-hmm. And you can guess what the general said about that, you know, to hell with your constitution. Uh, No civil officer would be allowed to serve civil processes to National Guard officers on duty. Uh, So now things start to get really sketchy because, as you can tell, we are just diving straight into chaos here where it's not clear that anyone is in charge. So there was a plot to derail a train. The spikes got pulled from the tracks it looked like an attempt to crash a train carrying scabs to the non-union mines. A former union member was arrested and signed a confession, but then he recanted, saying that he had been promised a pardon, immunity, $1,000, and a ticket for him and his wife anywhere in the world if he would just lie about it. <laughs> so, oh lo and God. behold, it was in fact the, the detectives who arrested the first guy had actually pulled the spikes, and they admitted to being paid by the mine owners to try to sabotage the train, bringing their own scabs to work. <sighs> the union guys who'd been charged were thankfully acquitted. The detectives were never charged. Oh my God. Uh, so, yeah. So at the same time as this, you've got a similar situation going down in Telluride, down in the southern part of the state. Union members demanding an eight-hour workday, the National Guard moving in. And this is now getting big enough that you have the secretary of the Miners Federation, who is a guy named Big Bill Haywood, which is a name you'll recognize <laughs> if you've studied a bit of, of union history. You've got the president of the Miners Union, a guy named Charles Moyer, and along with them, a striking miner from Crickle, Cripple Creek who is traveling along as Moyer's bodyguard. That guy's name was Harry Orchard, and put a pin in that name for a minute. So during that strike in Telluride, Bill Haywood made a rather infamous poster, a broadside with the title on it is Colorado in America. (gasps) And it's, it's an American flag. (laughs) 
And inside the stripes covering everything we've been talking about, martial law, suspending habeas corpus, soldiers defying the courts, corporations effectively running the state government. Um, it w- And it was on, you, you see the American flag on a pole because a, a miner in Telluride had in fact been chained to a flagpole. Oh my God. <laughs> right. Uh So just to prove that that poster was 100% accurate, the National Guard proceeded to arrest the Union President, Charles Moyer, on a charge of desecrating the flag because his signature (laughs) was on that poster. (laughs) Oh my God, okay. So Mm -hmm. the courts say, no, you don't get to do that. You have to release Charles Moyer. And the National Guard says, screw you, we're the National Guard. Mm -hmm. So this gets us... Oh, to my November goodness. 21st, 1903. And boy, if you think things were a little crazy up to now, uh, you now were heading back to Cripple Creek and there is an explosion at the Vindicator Mine. There's a coroner's jury, an inquest held, could not determine what caused the blast. The mine had been heavily guarded by the National Guard soldiers. They weren't letting union members in or out, of course. Right but the company blamed the explosion on the union anyway. 15 strike leaders were arrested, never prosecuted. The National Guard just starts rounding up even children who were chiding the soldiers. Oh. Just, we're, we're locking up oh. kids at this point. I mean, like, can and I just so ask you a quick fr- question? Yeah. Mines yeah. explode. Like, it's not unusual Mines explode. for them right. to, no, be, they, they, to be... Right. Okay. Yes, and we're we're talking about workplace safety later on in this episode. Yes, job hazards, mines do in fact explode. Um, Yeah. uh, And in the early 1900s. Sometimes by accident. Yeah, the early 1900s, not unusual. Not unusual. Uh, So the governor then, in the first week of December 1903, officially declares martial law. Because I guess the de facto martial law up until then wasn't good enough. And fair. General Sherman That's Bell fair. officially takes charge of everything. The National Guard suspends the Bill of Rights. They start start censoring any pro-Union information in the local paper. They're confiscating weapons and ammunition. There is no freedom to assemble. Union members would go to court, win a habeas corpus case, be released from the courthouse, and immediately rearrested by the National Guard the second they step outside. That tracks. So the yep. National Guard... But yeah, Uh, (laughs) the National Guard now starts carrying out large scale deportations of union members. Just put you on a train and ship you out of town. Uh, The district attorney was the former secretary of the Mine Owners Association. (laughs) He refused to prosecute any court cases against the mining companies or the local vigilantes. Uh, The the vigilante group is known as the Citizens Alliance. (laughs) Uh, And the union, to their credit, Still wouldn't give up. So okay. fast forward now seven months, June 1904, and there is another explosion, this time at the train station in Independence, Colorado. Thirteen people are killed. They were non-union workers. They were scabs going to a night shift at one of the mines. Okay. And at this point, the vigilantes, the Citizens Alliance, takes over the town. They go to the sheriff and say, sheriff, you're done here. Time for you to resign. The sheriff says, no, I'm the sheriff. The Citizens Alliance says, well, yeah, but we've got these guns and this lovely rope right here. So we really suggest you resign before you're hanging on the end of it. Uh, And faced with 
an angry lynch mob, the sheriff does in fact resign. The vigilantes then went on to force more than 30 local officials to resign, replacing <gasps> all of them with union enemies, pro-mining folks. Uh, so the mine owners now call a town meeting, thanks to all of their newly installed uh, mining sympathetic uh, town officials, they call a town meeting directly across the street from the union hall. You've got the National Guard and the vigilantes together surrounding the Union Hall, and you have an hour-long gunfight. Oh, my God. Somehow only a couple of people were killed in this, uh, but the, the Citizens Alliance, the vigilantes, round up 175 Union members and sympathizers, and they set up a kangaroo court the very next day and send deport 38 of them out of town. The the Citizens Alliance goes on a vandalism spree. They wreck the Union Hall uh, there. They wreck all of the Union Halls in the Cripple Creek District. And they again arrest the staff of the newspaper in Victor, Colorado. Yeah, this is this is insane. And then the next day, General Sherman shows up and holds a trial of 1,500 prisoners at once and finds 230 <laughs> of them guilty. Which is to say they weren't willing to renounce the Union in front of General Sherman. And I, I would really love to tell you that this is some wonderful story and the miners come back and win. No, this was the end of the Western Federation of Miners in Cripple Creek. The mine owners, with the help of the governor and the National Guard, successfully broke the miners' union. And historians, of course, have looked back on this, and there is a lot of evidence that the the train station bombing that killed 13 people was, in fact, a setup by the mine owners to kill their own scab workers and frame the union for it. Wow. That's insane. And that's insane. Uh, now, there is a postscript okay, so to this story. Yeah, yeah. That That is crazy. I mean... The murders, like, I, there's been a definite change in how we view human life. I mean, COVID is maybe a rare exception that we don't care yeah, that yeah. much about it. But, like, to die because you are a union member who is trying to protect an eight-hour work week or just better working conditions as a whole, that's just craziness. Right. Much less kill 13 of your own employees in an attempt to frame the union for it. Yeah. Yeah, well, right. I mean, right. train stations don't just generally blow up like mine. Right. No. Right. I mean, so Mark speaking and I, of things, yeah, yeah, Mark right. and I spent a lot of time learning about a train station that had an explosion. I mean, that was like one of the first <laughs> cases we ever learned about. So, oh my gosh, Pal's graph. Yes. <laughs> so, but all right. So, speaking of things that usually don't blow up, governors. <laughs> Not, I mean, spontaneously, certainly spontaneously. not. Spontaneously. Uh, so I mean, some we're have blown ahead, but. Yeah, uh, but but no one's like William Howard Taft-sized here that we're talking about. Yes. Um, yeah, so this is 1905, December 1905 in Boise, Idaho, where Frank Steunenberg was a former governor. He'd been out of office for five years, but in his final year in office, this may sound familiar, he declared martial law to break up a minor strike. No. Nope. All right. Five years later... Uh, there is a bomb rigged to a side gate on his house, and the former governor is dead. Uh, cops arrest a guy named Harry Orchard, who you will recall was the bodyguard 
for the yes. Union president back in, in Telluride there. Uh, so the, they arrest the guy. They're putting him on death row. But, oh, you know, we'd probably better do our due diligence on this one. Let's call him a detective to really solve the case. Who should we call? We should call the Pinkertons. Who else? Who else are you going to? Yeah. Uh, so James McParland is the Pinkerton agent uh, called in here. He had already been known for breaking up a group of Pennsylvania coal miners called the Molly Maguires. So he gets the Stoinenberg case. He interviews Harry Orchard, who is already on death row before a trial has already started. And McParland tells Orchard, hey, you know what? You're about to hang here. But if you would be willing to maybe implicate the Western Federation of Miners and here, have have a nice lunch, maybe some cigars. And maybe even if you cooperate and tell us what we want to hear, uh, we could even maybe work out a financial settlement here so that everyone leaves happy. <gasps> and lo and behold, Harry Orchard signs a 64 page typed confession, admitting to a whole string of crimes and at least 17 murders, including the bombing <gasps> that killed former governor Stoinenberg. And oh, as part of that no. confession, he implicates uh, four men and three of them at the time were in Denver, including big bill Haywood, the secretary who'd created that American flag broadside, Charles Moyer, mm-hmm. the president of the union, and a guy named George Pettibone. Now, none of them had even been in Idaho when Orchard was planning the bombing, but under Idaho law, conspirators are considered to be present at the scene of the crime, so prosecutors drew up extradition papers alleging that Haywood, Moyer, and these other guys had been physically at the bombing. Wow. So, Yeah. So the Pinkertons know the arrests are going to be a big news. So Agent McParland arrests, uh, arranges for a, a special private train to haul the prisoners back to Idaho to stand trial. So Moyer, the president, hears this is coming. He's ready to leave town. He's going to flee to Canada, but police find him and mo- that moves up the arrests of the other two. All right, now the Pinkertons have a problem because that train isn't going to be ready for the next morning. Now you've got high-profile prisoners clearly being framed in the city jail. (laughs) Reporters start nosing around, like, what the hell is going on here? So the police in Denver sneak the three out of jail, take them to a hotel near a train station, and hold them there. And and the next morning, the three of them, Hayward, Moyer, and Pettibone, put on that train, guarded by the Colorado militia. The train speeds out of Denver up to Wyoming. It only stops for water and crew changes at out-of-the-way stations. No major town stopping because we wouldn't want anything to happen along the way. Union members point out this is a kidnapping. They extradited these guys out of Colorado before the courts even had a chance to intervene, hold an extradition hearing. But the Supreme Court denied a habeas corpus appeal, (gasps) and they, they head to town, head to trial in Idaho. Guess who the lead attorney was Clarence oh. Darrow. Oh, and really? this was his. Yes. That Clarence Darrow. He was already a, a well-known labor lawyer, but this was his first high profile criminal case that put Clarence Darrow on the map. On the map. The scopes monkey trial. Yeah. Uh, so the state of Idaho spends half of its annual budget to hire both the Pinkertons and a, a special prosecutor named William Bora, who would later go on to be elected to the Senate. And this is going to be a big deal trial. Bill Haywood 
realizes this is going to be a big deal trial. So what do you do when you're preparing for a really high profile murder trial and your life is on the line? You run for governor of Colorado <laughs> from your jail cell in Idaho. And Big Bill Haywood got 16,000 votes from his jail cell. Yes. So Haywood is wow. first up for the trial. 50 reporters from around the country go to the courthouse in Boise. How long do you think a murder trial like this for just for killing the governor takes? 80 days. Even though the government's well, case is essentially only Harry Orchard's. Right. And that's the entire case is, is Harry Orchard's confession. But oh. in, during the trial, Harry Orchard's admits he had been a paid informant for the mine owners, that he had accepted money from the Pinkerton de- detectives, and that he had also committed those bombings at the Vindicator mine and the train platform during the Colorado labor wars. Uh. And with all of that, Clarence Darrow's closing argument was more than 11 hours long. And that was one of four closing arguments in the case. And after all of that, 80 days, days worth of closing arguments, it only took the jury nine hours to acquit George Haywood. Next guy, George Pettibone, is up next. Jury acquits him too. What? Sorry? Does the guy running for governor win? I mean, I hope so. He did not win, but he got he got sixteen thousand oh. votes from his jail cell, which is you know, <laughs> no 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 mean feat there, you know, especially no. considering you can't you know no no handshaking campaigning going on when you're two states right. up and and locked up. Yeah. Uh, so after that, prosecutors give up. They they drop the charges against Moyer, who was the president of the union, and in the end, only Harry Orchard, who did in fact plant the bomb, was convicted of murdering the former governor. Uh, Orchard avoided the gallows, uh, converted, uh, found God, uh, and uh, <laughs> died uh, farming poultry out of a shack uh, inside the walls of the state prison, finally in a, died in, in 1954. It That's is pretty clear time, at this yeah. point that Harry Orchard was, in fact, working for the Pinkertons all throughout all the along. Colorado labor wars. They, they had spies up and down the miners' union, and that trip to Telluride was in fact set up by a detective who worked for the mine, mining railroad to to have Orchard infiltrate the union and get close to to Moyer and union leadership. Um, so it it does seem likely that the bombings were just Pinkerton and mine company operations to justify the governor declaring martial law. Uh, but Big Bill Haywood, the secretary of the union at that point, became a celebrity and. As you might expect, after being framed for murder, uh, he was somewhat radicalized by that experience. Uh, By 1908, he was even too radical for the Federation of Miners. He was now organizing (laughs) exclusively for the Wobblies, the IWW, which he had helped found. Uh, He would go on to lead strikes and direct action across the country, including the Lawrence textile strike in Massachusetts. He became (laughs) the president of the Wobblies and eventually tried and convicted of espionage. (gasps) Sentenced to 20 years in prison. So in 1921, he was out on appeal. He skips bail and flees to Russia, where he becomes a labor advisor to Vladimir Lenin. What's oh, gonna my do? goodness. Um, and again, not, not a happy ending for Big Bill Haywood, by, by all accounts from visitors. He, he died lonely and depressed in exile in 1928 from a stroke brought on by alcoholism and diabetes. But you can still find half of Big Bill's Big Bill Haywood's ashes 
at the Kremlin, there's a plaque to him today. The other oh half God. were sent to Chicago, buried near a monument to the, the victims of the Haymarket bombing and riot. Um, it is a somewhat happy ending for the Western Federation of Miners. The legislature in 1909 did agree to pay back the union $60,000 in compensation for the damages that the state troops inflicted. Uh, and the mine, uh, the union, even though it ceased to be effective in Cripple Creek, did go on. Uh, and eventually, through some name changes and mergers, it is part of United Steelworkers today. So it is wow! still around. And that Union Hall in Victor, Colorado, that got shot up is still standing, bullet holes and all. Apparently, it's in need of, of restoration. But the next time I'm up that way, I may take a little photography trip to go uh, go see the Union Hall in Victor, Colorado. Wow. That is one hell of a and story. That your, yeah, that is the craziest story, right? labor dispute. <laughs> I mean, I've 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 seen strikes and scabs and the rat, but I have never heard of like murders and explosions. No, for, and kill, uh, killing your own scabs to try to frame the union—that really is above and beyond. Yeah, it is. Yeah, so I, mean, I heard I heard that story, and I'm like, it has to be on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> How can we not cover that story on this podcast? I feel pretty confident even Hyman would put this as a worst employer of the year for 1903 and 4. So, I mean, you know, there's like, you know, planning a bomb to kill your own scabs or there's, you know, there's pennies. <laughs> yeah. So, I don't know, you know, I actually don't know which is worse. Um, well, thank you, Aaron. Thank you, Aaron. That was awesome. Uh, we're going to do another story and then come back to uh, your second story. Uh, Kate, to lead up to this story, which Kate's going to talk about, I'm going to read something from one of our listeners. We got this great uh, email uh, from Kevin Bean. He says, hi, Kate and Mark. First off, let me just say that I love your podcast so much. (laughs) I don't have an occupational interest in HR, nor a particularly personal interest, but you guys are proof that what makes a great podcast is the hosts. I will listen to you guys talk about tulips, backhoes, anything. (laughs) I really do like yes, both tulips and backhoes. In other news, this yeah. is now a gardening podcast. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's awesome. Oh, well, thanks, uh, Kevin. And, and uh, just trying to tie back into the landscape there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, Kevin continues. Alas, in my own work history, I can't think of anything podcast worthy uh, for HR stories. But I guess the below emerging story has been making the rounds, and I'd love to hear your take. And he sends us a link to a New York Times article about the Thetacare lawsuit in Wisconsin. And uh, from there, I'm going to turn it over to Kate, uh, who has prepared more to talk about this. I do have some interesting choice quotes here from some of the briefing on it, which as you get into the story, Kate, I might interrupt with. But um, uh, quotes that uh, that Kevin provided us uh, from one of the briefs. Ah. in that case. So, but if you want to frame it, let us know kind of what's going on there. This was crazy. This was really weird. Uh, very unusual kind of case. And one that I yes. think will ultimately probably both conclude has no legal basis in anything. No. Uh, and yet still well, ends up with some weird stuff. The way I would, so I would start framing this case is when, yeah. So it's when we were talking about vaccine test or mandate from the Supreme Court, it was one of the first times where the fifth or sixth prong of 
the preliminary injunction really got some headway, which was the public interest part. You know, the public interest in reducing a pandemic is really important. And because of the pandemic, our healthcare workers are overstretched. Many have left the industry as a whole. In fact, there is, um, I was listening to a different podcast or a webinar, and they were talking about the 25% uh, attrition rate in healthcare workers overall, so that they're hugely leaving the industry. And so that brings us to the Fox Valley in Wisconsin. Now, I will try to keep my level of distaste for Wisconsin to a relative minor, but it, it will come through as a whole. <laughs> um, but there, a hospital in Fox Valley had, which is near Appleton, kind of central Wisconsin kind of area, um, had a trauma and stroke center with 11 radiologists and nurses that would staff the center. And seven of them had got a better job offer at a nearby Appleton hospital called Ascentis. And Ascentis, St. Elizabeth, I believe, Ascentis gives them a new job and brings them over. and They're, they're excited. The employees have given Theta Care and the opportunity to meet the wages and meet the better work-life balance. At least they testified that they had given Theta Care the opportunity to match their offer, and Theta Care said no. And then they go and find some whack-ass attorney who decides, well, we'll just get a preliminary injunction and prohibit them from going to work for a sentence, which is craziness. Right. Because these employees right. I, like they don't remember they're, they're at will. Yeah. Like these employees, they don't have a contract. They don't have anything that binds them to continue uh, working for their current employer. Cor- cor- correct my, my non-lawyerness here, but isn't Wisconsin a right to work state? Doesn't fucking matter, Aaron. That, yeah, that's, <laughs> um, that's more on the labor side. <laughs> yeah. And and right to work doesn't mean what everybody thinks it means. It has a, no. a, a very distinct meaning and it, it doesn't mean that. But, and it is common for folks, especially folks who are like radiologists, who some of these folks were, to have employment contracts that would have restrictions on them being able to go work for a competitor or leaving without some notice period. It would have like a 90 or 120 day notice period for a a higher level medical professional is not uncommon, but that doesn't, that's not in play. No, definitely not a play here. These were at will employees. And as Allison Green, AKA ask a manager said, this is fucked up. Okay. So, They bring the suit on Thursday. Friday, a judge in some named county I cannot pronounce up gives a preliminary injunction saying, we will have a hearing on this on Monday. For right now, we're going to hold the status quo, which for a lot of people were like, why would a judge say that? That seems ridiculous. Okay. So I'm a little bit in that camp because the judge should have just tossed this from the get-go. It should just be tossed, right? Because because a standard typically on a preliminary injunction like that's going to be, well, who's likely to win this? And if I think they're likely to win, then I'll, then I'll grant the injunction. But there's no reason to think that they should win. No, there's none. There's nothing, nothing here at all. Nothing here at all. It should just have been bounced and that's the end of it. Right. But, you know, judges like to split the baby, see if yeah. the parties will come to a conclusion mm-hmm. so he doesn't have to actually stick his neck out. Um, so they don't. 
And Monday they have the hearing and all of the employees go up and testify. And this is where they testify that they asked for the same amount of money and the work-life balance stuff. And ThetaCare said no. And ThetaCare's whole public interest here was we can't run our stroke and trauma center without these people. And if we don't have these people, we can't offer those services. And so the public is in danger. And that was their major argument. Um, and, you know, maybe the judge bought that a little bit for Friday, but certainly didn't buy it on Monday and threw the case out or threw out the injunction. And then ThetaCare voluntarily dismissed their action later that week or later this past week. Um, and my favorite part of this is this, like, how big this lawsuit got and as fast as it got. Like, it became Washington Post, New York Times, all of the major newspapers covered this particular case because imagine what would have happened if they were forced to go back to ThetaCare. It would mean that if you were a nurse or a radiologist or a doctor, you couldn't leave because of the public interest in you providing that care. Now, it is not like slavery like we had in the U.S. that started this country from 1619 to 1866. But it is, you are, they're indentured servants. They can't move. They are forced to stay there, which obliterates the at-will employment doctrine and would give employees no leverage in what their wages are, what their quality of life is, all of those kinds of things, which is the only true power an employee has is that they can take their services elsewhere. And if we eliminate that part of it, you, you are stuck wherever you are at any point in time. Now, ThetaCare dismisses their suit in part because they admit that they were able to still staff their trauma and stroke center. Their CEO, Mr. Andrabi, says, this week has went well. Next week seems to be on track. And then beyond, we will also continue to have a good process by which we should have the right number of people we need to continue our care or trauma and stroke for the community. This is so what they're makes me think their own this case. was a yeah. stupid-ass attorney. Yes, totally. They totally undermined their own case. Now, there are traveling nurses, traveling radiologists, or the, who they contracted with to provide these services. And providing cross-training to the cost of $11,000, which I'm sure broke the bank for the hospital. But there, so there still is cost. But had they just looked at whether or not they could match a census's offer, I bet this would be much cheaper for them. And it wouldn't have this significant recruiting and retaining and PR nightmare that they are going to be living in that was self-inflicted and deserved. So that is my story on Authenticare Ascendus. Yeah, a couple of my favorite uh, points here from uh, you said, I, what was the, I, so I have it written down as Ascension. I don't know if it's Ascension or Ascentive, but from there, oh, yeah, the other Ascension, side, not yeah. uh, not Care, uh, their brief on this has a couple of choice quotes. Uh, it opens <laughs> with, your failure to prepare is not my personal emergency. <laughs> uh, yes. And then continues. Yes. It continues on. With this frantic last-minute lawsuit, ThetaCare attempts to convert its own poor management into a disruptive personal emergency for everyone, anyone but itself. In short, yep. this emergency is entirely of ThetaCare's making because ThetaCare is making it up. 
And my last one, uh, <laughs> yeah. which I love here, it seems Thetacare missed a second lesson of childhood, the story of the boy who cried wolf. <laughs> that childhood story didn't end well for the boy, and this lawsuit shouldn't end well for Thetacare. I'm just amazed they were able to resolve it yep. without calling in the National Guard. Right? Amazing. Amazing. <laughs> and everybody's alive. Yes. That well, we know and, and, right. And you know what? No, they, they obviously, these two hospitals are, they share services or that they pass patients back and forth. And so they have to have some sort of community. But if I was Ascension, I would be getting my attorney's fees for this. I would like, oh, yeah. I would be demanding them. Like, you don't get to just voluntarily dismiss this. You're going to pay me. And because we had an attorney working over the weekend, this should be very expensive for them. So I, well, it just galls me that that if Theta Care gets away yeah. with this. Um, yeah. So. Yeah, it's, it's incredible. Um, uh, people behaving badly um, being a theme. <laughs> uh, Aaron, would you like to... Give us a lead in for your second story, which is one of the more like, like this should definitely go on, on John Hyman's list uh, for this year. Uh, <laughs> Colorado labor wars probably didn't happen this year. If, this if, did. If, yeah. I was, if not a, a bad employer of the year, which I'll make that case for, but certainly a worst coworker of the year nominee coming up right here. So, uh, this is a, a clip that many of you may have seen. It is live on WSAZ television in West Virginia. This is a reporter uh, named Tori Yorgi reporting live from a water main break. Three's Tori Yorgi joins us now live in Dunbar. And Tori, they're not seeing any flakes but wet roads. And now we're starting to experience, unfortunately, in freeze thaw, we see this water main breaks. Got hit by a car, but I'm okay. I just got hit by a car, but I'm well, okay, Tim. That's first um, I'm okay. TV, Tori. Woo! Ah! I'm okay. Yeah, you know that's live TV for you. It's all good. Ooh. I actually got hit by a car in college too, just like that. Wow. <laughs> I am so glad I'm okay. What? Yeah. You're okay. You're okay. We're all good. This is uh oh. you know what? It's uh sure, one sure woman you're band. Okay, We're good, Tim. Ma'am, you, sure you okay? are so sweet and you are okay. It is all good. You know, I... Oh, oh, Lord. So you... You know, it's my last week on the job, and I think this would happen. So you were bumped in... to me, Tim. Were you bumped down low, Tori, or were you hit up high? I couldn't really tell from the looking. Oh, wrong question. I, I I don't even... Uh, do you know if I was bumped yep. down low or up high, sir? I just saw you disappear I don't even know. I don't even know, Tim. I, my whole oh. life just flashed before my eyes. Oh, but this happen. is live TV, and everything's okay. I, I thought I was in a safe spot, but clearly um, we might need to move the camera over a bit. Yeah. So let me do that while I'm thinking of it. Now, to, just to set oh, you stage you for know? you, once again, Tori's in an area right now where there's been a water main break, so there are emergency vehicles around there. And a lot of times what we have seen in those kind of situations yeah. are in, when emergency vehicles are around, there's a lot of confusion from people about drivers, about where to go. So it's possible people that's what People get distracted there. a little bit. Why? Yeah. Why? Tori, you didn't even see oh, the car. Oh, God, what? that woman, that woman was so nice, though. Yeah. She didn't mean to. It was an accident. I know it was, and I'm okay. Wait for Everything's it. Everything's fine. But again, Tim, we're, we'll get back to the report, right? Yep. We're on Rocks, a lot of hills drive in Dunbar. This is where that water main break is, and yep. this is what happens. Okay. Okay. 
I'm putting on my former TV news director hat here and let us run down the numerous levels of (laughs) failure here. Okay. Starting with Tim, who was rightfully dragged on the internet for just standing there, sitting there stone faced as his coworker gets hit by a car on TV. Tim later claimed that he couldn't see it. He didn't see his air monitor. Okay, I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt there that he didn't actually see it happen live. Regardless, you now have your coworker. Clearly, you can see the camera on the ground, and your coworker is telling you, I just got hit by a car. The proper reaction is not, Where were you hit? Yes. The only appropriate appropriate thing to say there is, We will be right back. We're going to check on Tori. Toss to break, right? Now, there are three people at least three people involved here who have the authority to do that. One is Tim, the anchor whose job it is Mm -hmm. to know the right thing to say when shit goes off the rails. Number two is there is a producer in the booth who is the one running the show, who is the one in contact Mm -hmm. with Tori. And then you have a director who is the one actually pushing the buttons. Any of those three people Mm -hmm. can and should say, go to break, go to break, go to break, check on Tori, right? Instead, they are hanging on what is called a two box. You're seeing both the live camera now on the side on the ground as Tori is picking up her own camera Mm -mm. and her coworker makes her relive the trauma live on television. And then they make her keep going with the report that she was going to be doing there live on the. Okay. So this is just horrific Uh on all. All of those levels. This is she is clearly not okay. She is clearly in shock. You're making her talk about that on live TV. She is in no position to know whether she's okay. I mean, you have so much adrenaline going through your system at that point. You could have a broken leg and hip and have no idea, of course. Yeah. Right. And you could hear it. So, you could hear it in her voice. And you could hear it in her voice. She is clearly not okay. Don't make her keep going. All right. So there's numerous failures there if that had been my newsroom if i had been the the news director there uh everyone involved is getting hauled into my office the very next day and and everyone is getting berated if not fired for a massive collective lapse in judgment there Mm -hmm. so that's number one but number two is the workplace safety issue which is why i mentioned this to mark of this is something you have to talk about on the podcast is Tori Yorgi is what's known as a one-man band or a, a multimedia journalist, MMJ, which there are lots and lots of. Back, back in the day, back when I was growing up, my mom was an anchor in Tucson, and it took a whole lot more people to run a TV station. You had mm-hmm. lots of people in the studios. You had lots of people in the control booth, and it took at least three people to do a live shot. You had to have the reporter, mm-hmm. the photographer, and someone running the live truck which at that point was generally one of those microwave trust trucks that you see with a giant mast that rises up. And over the years, through efficiency and margins shrinking, the number of people running a TV studio, getting a newscast on the air has continuously shrunk. Yep. And the photographers went out the door first. But you would still need someone there to do a live shot because you would still need someone to operate the truck. And within the last 10 years, you had a technology come on the scene called live backpacks, which is just what it sounds like. It's a a, a backpack with a bunch of cellular modems in them that rather than having to send that giant mast up, 
uh, you could just plug in and send video back to the station that way. And they weren't, it wasn't common to see live one man live shots. Um, my former colleague of mine, Carrie Higgins Dobney, who I worked with in Portland is now a, a PhD professor in media studies. And she actually surveyed folks on this as, as part of her research. And as of a couple of years ago, solo, solo live shots were not common. Um, but solo reporters out in the field were this trend now of making reporters go live by themselves. I, I think you probably saw it accelerate more during the pandemic where going live from your house, which reporters started doing mm -hmm. all the time. Well, that was no problem at all. But that is a very, very different thing than going live outside in extreme weather by the side of the road at a water main break. Yeah. And that is where you have a series of safety failures here. And I don't know how much training Tori had gotten on safety. But back in the day, when I was a producer, I wasn't ever out in the field and producers got live shot safety drilled into us that here are the things that you have to do to make sure your crews are safe. Here are the things that live truck operators must do. And that includes things like wearing a high visibility reflective vest. If you're anywhere near the side of the road, putting yeah. cones around the live truck, anywhere you're near the side of the road. Safe to say, obviously she was not wearing a high vis vest. Who knows if one had ever been supplied to her. Obviously she was not in a safe enough spot by the side of the road. Pretty safe to assume there were no, uh, cones or reflectors or anything, but most importantly, there was no one behind the camera. So that car comes up behind her and hits her from behind. She had no idea because there was no one else looking out for her. And that to me is where TV right. stations are going to get someone killed on live TV this way. And ownership groups now, they know this now. I mean, th this was inevitable and the real failure here is not just Tim in the studio sitting there stone-faced or the producer who didn't say toss to break. The failure is in the TV station ownership that someone said it is an acceptable risk to take to send a reporter out by themselves for a live shot in extreme weather. And that's where I can see a, a wrongful death suit somewhere coming along the way saying, you knew this was dangerous and yet you forced your employees to do this. And it's just appalling to me that that TV stations, which are owned by large corporations, are allowing this. Well, it's it's shocking to me, in fact, that we know being out on a live shot is very dangerous. I mean, Andy Parker yes. just announced his candidacy based in part because mm -hmm. his daughter was killed on live TV Allison. in one of those live shots. Yeah. So we know that these are really dangerous. Ugh. And and that was a case where it was effectively workplace violence. That was a, a former co-worker who shot both Allison and her photographer, Adam Ward, during the live interview. Um, and, you know, that was, I guess, a case where you're doing everything right. But mm -hmm. still, if you're live on TV, you are effectively putting a target on your crew's back because everyone can see where they are. Right. So if you've got someone who's targeting them, uh, you know, that's... It it adds the risk, and I mean, we do see TV stations sometimes investing in security, mm -hmm. uh, which ironically brings us back to the fucking Pinkertons. <laughs> because it, mm -hmm. in 2020, you had a security guard with KUSA, Channel 9 here in Denver, who was contracted through the Pinkertons <laughs> 
killed a guy while working for Channel 9 here during one of the rallies downtown. And that guy is still awaiting trial. Um, Pinkerton has now lost its security license in Denver because the guy wasn't licensed as a security guard. Uh, And because that criminal trial is still going, we haven't seen anything on the civil side, but I I would imagine that Tegna, the parent company of KUSA, at some point is going to get named uh, in a civil lawsuit. They're, you know, they issued a statement that, to me, raised more questions than it answers because they, they said none of Nine News's crew, accompanied by Mr. Doloff, the guard, on Saturday were aware that he was armed. Now, that to me leaves room for all sorts of other employees who weren't with him that day to have known that he was armed. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> right. And so this whole notion of, you know, safety and live shots, I'm sure we have not seen the end of it in the TV news business. No, certainly not. No, it sounds almost like it's just the beginning. Yeah. Unbelievable. Mm. Uh, Well, do you want to do some uplifting reader news? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So we're already uh, well on pace here for our longest episode ever, but I think with very good reason. Uh, I'm still going to wrap us up here with Mm -hmm. a listener story. I got a couple. Thank you. Uh, Remember, if you have, uh, I'm always looking for more. Uh, So please uh, send us your stories or anything else you think we might find of interest. I do look at all of it, even if it doesn't make it onto the podcast. uh, And send that to uh, hwepodcast at gmail.com. We're going to finish up with a story here. Uh, This comes from listener HR Linda. (laughs) I have always said that when people show you who they are, listen. Well, I didn't first say it, but I heard it and and say it to myself. So here's a story about a candidate for employment. For reasons that you uh, will see, I simply shall refer to him by the initial P. (laughs) I'm going to start with the candidate's review of our company on social media, and then we'll share what really happened. Company review by P. Waste of time, very poor organizational (laughs) skills, and lack of professionalism. Initially, I was contacted for a position off of Indeed.com. I turned down multiple job offers in hopes of working for this company. Today, 25 days later after the initial contact, I was told to look elsewhere as it wasn't a good fit, basically due to their mishandling slash communication on their part about a simple but complicated urine analysis. They even offered me a gas card for the inconvenience. Who was in the wrong here? They completely wasted my time. A phone interview, in-person interview, paperwork, toured the plant, went to orientation, and did a urine analysis. I went to the clinic to give a urine sample, which I got to choose off of a list of clinics, so I chose this one, only to find out that they don't perform these tests anymore. So I then drove to a different city as I was, uh, sorry, losing my way here. So I then uh, drove to a different city as I was told this clinic still does them there and notified the company immediately my findings and that I was uh, at a different clinic to have my urine test done than the, and the previous place I was at no longer did them. So I checked in with a receptionist and told them I was forwarded to this clinic to perform urine test and also that I had to go to the bathroom right then. (laughs) I held my... I held my bladder and waited patiently to be told that I was not going to be able to do the drug screen. I was upset. Anybody would be if they were in my shoes that day. 
I went out to the parking lot and contacted the company about the situation as I was upset. After half an hour sitting in my car in the parking lot, finally, I got a phone call from the company asking if I wanted to go back in and finish the urine test. I said yes and completed it, never even to start the position. So that's what was posted on on a company review website. Here's the rest of the story. Okay. I do not remember specifically what the timeline was for being hired, uh, but those of us in HR know that sometimes the process takes longer than the job seeker wants. Following the conditional job Mm -hmm. offer, he did not pass his initial in-house drug screen. So when that happens, we send them for an official urine drug screen off-site. We had a list from the clinic with locations in their network where employees could, quote-unquote, go pun intended. Uh, and we were unaware that this location uh, in the network was no longer performing <laughs> drug screens as one of their services. So yes, this part of the story mm-hmm. was true. He did need to be redirected. We offered a sincere apology and offered him a gas card for the inconvenience. When P arrived at the second yeah. clinic, there was a bit of a wait since he did not have an appointment. P called us to tell us he was turned away and we told him we would look into it. I called the clinic and the receptionist told me uh, he was tr- uh, the reason he was turned away is that P was being belligerent in the waiting room and was spouting <laughs> off with the others in the waiting room trying to create a riot. <laughs> nice. Nice. Mm-hmm. They were refusing to see him due to his unprofessional behavior. I explained mm-hmm. the situation to her about why P was a little frustrated, uh, yet also apologized for his uncivilized behavior. I pleaded with her to let him back uh, if I promised to ensure he behaved himself, and she agreed. I called P back, and without mentioning that I knew the real reason why he was asked to leave, simply stated that they were ready to see him now. And I know you are frustrated, but could you please be polite, and let's quickly and quietly get this done. (laughs) P says, I don't need to go anymore. I ask, what do you mean you don't need to go anymore? (laughs) P says, I P says, well, he's already there. Remember, he's already, he's sitting there. Ask for a um, bottle of water, buddy. <laughs> yeah. So P, so I, I ask, what do you mean you don't need to go anymore? And P says, I already went right outside the front door. <gasps> wow. Oh, sounds like Pinkerton behavior. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, this does answer a question that I have had for at least 25 years. <laughs> Who does number two? <laughs> That's right, buddy. You show that Curtis boss. Well, you just had that. Hang- you just had that hanging out the. I, you know, I, I saw where this story. was going, so I knew and we needed to, to get that one lined up here. I, although I think in this case, it's who does number one work? I, no, for. Number one work for. Work right. for. Yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> that was awesome. <laughs> how's that? So, how is that? Continuing from our our listener, how's that for keeping it classy? He showed us who he was, and we listened. He never did actually go do the mm-hmm. drug screen, and needless to say, we retracted the offer. You can't make this stuff up. Thanks for the great work you do on the pod, <laughs> HR Linda. Thank you, nice. HR Linda. Thank you, Linda. For sending that to us. If, again, if you have a story uh, uh, or something or a question or anything else uh, that you want to bring to our attention, hwepodcast at gmail.com. That's it's better than LinkedIn because I'll see your stuff on LinkedIn and I'll forget about it. But if it's in the email <laughs> account for the podcast, then uh, I'm guaranteed to see it because I check it right before we record. So, uh, anyway, 
uh, I want to thank Aaron uh, for joining Yay! us today. That two unbelievable stories. I, I will apologize for making this your your longest episode <laughs> yet. Thank, thank you for preparing no. with me an hour plus into this. Thing. No, 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 no apologies. It's uh, some of the I think some of the best content we've had. So uh, great stuff, Aaron. Where can folks find you uh, if they're looking for you, or if they're looking to, to catch an episode of the landscape? Well, you, you can find the landscape anywhere fine podcasts mm-hmm. are sold, uh, especially <laughs> iTunes. I'm not going to recommend Spotify right now, but I was gonna say. <laughs> any other platform you'd like. Uh, and also I'm uh, a Weiss on Twitter, a W E I S S. All yes. right, Kate, where can folks find you? Yes. I follow you, especially your trips through uh, Iceland, my favorite place. Oh, yeah, there's some, some good Iceland pictures back there. Yes. <laughs> Kate, where can folks mm-hmm. find you? Mm-hmm. Can you guys hear me? Well, I... I can. <laughs> I think... Oh, there we go. Kate may not be able to hear me. No, We're no. Coming off the rails yeah, now. Yeah, all off the rails. Well, you can find me at K8BISCH on the Twitters, on the website, on LinkedIn. That's where I am. You can find me just about anywhere, but you will find me on the beach in Mexico this week. Yes, don't reach out to Kate this week. <laughs> She'll be on the beach. <laughs> Send all podcast-related stuff to me. Uh, I'm at Salad Pants <laughs> on Twitter. You can find me on the Bullard Law website. Uh, and uh, you know how to reach us through the podcast. Email address, hwbpodcast at gmail.com. All right, guys. This was awesome. Uh, Thank you, Kate. Aaron. Yeah. Thank Aaron. you, guys. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. And Kate, we'll be back here uh, in two weeks and you can regale us with stories of water slides and uh, yoga with Cheryl Crow. Yes. Yoga with Cheryl Crow. Cheryl Crow. <laughs> Cheryl Kroga. <laughs> yes. All right. Bad dad puns. Yes. Done. All right. Bye, guys. Bye, everyone. <laughs>